Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Rob Jones was assigned to the United States Marine Corps Bravo Company 4th Combat Engineer Battalion in Roanoke as a combat engineer in 2008, deployed to Iraq with the role of finding buried caches of weapons. His second deployment was to Afghanistan in 2010, where he was tasked with the job of finding IEDs. And it was in this role that on July 22nd, Rob Jones stepped on an IED, which resulted in a double amputation above the knees five days later. He arrived at the Naval Medical Center, having left Afghanistan and the Marines that supplied his brotherhood and the mission that gave him the courage and selflessness that he had for the rest of his life. This is just the beginning. We're going to unpack all these things, but Rob has done some incredible things. First of all, thank you for being here. We talked a little bit before we got started. There was a part of your story. It was on your website. It might've been the Sports Illustrated part, even when they were talking about that interview and that part about you. You said that there was a part at the beginning when you were first injured and you realized that you were going to have the double amputation. There was a part of you that you've said that you go through, went through this almost like suicidal phase. No, I wouldn't say it was a suicidal phase. I think at the site of injury, I projected what I expected my life to be like as I was laying on my back in shock and pumped full of morphine. I was thinking that I was going to be in a wheelchair and my mom was going to have to wipe my ass and take care of me and I wasn't going to be able to do anything that I enjoyed. And so I was just asking people to finish me off to avoid that fate. But I wouldn't say that I, there was a there was no never a suicidal phase or anything after that. And once I got loaded into the tank that took me to a helicopter and got put unconscious, I never really considered an early death after that. That's impressive, man. In my injury, when I was with the light infantry with 10th Mountain, I was injured and paralyzed from the neck down. And when I'm in a bed, that's what I wanted. I felt like I was going to be a burden to everybody else. I wasn't going to be able to wipe my own ass. And I wanted out because I was being a victim. I was being a coward at that point. But I couldn't even act on it. So in a lot of ways, that was a blessing. But at the time, it was like, this is the one thing that I want. And I can't even do this. So it forced me to come to the conclusion that you did. I just wasn't able to do it as quickly or as courageously as you did. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a problem when you project the results of any particular event into the future because you really don't know. That's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is you can project all you want and you can expect, you can have expectations for what's probably going to happen, but you don't know what's going to happen in the future because you don't know how you're going to be able to adapt. You don't know what opportunities are going to come up for you as a result or to expect that I was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life and not be able to lift weights and not play racquetball and and my mom having to take care of me was just completely ignorant. So anytime you do that, you have to be careful because you really don't know what's what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And as you say, 
the reality is we have no clue, even if we have a great plan, right? The 70% rule from the Marines, right? We have this idea, but the last 30% is always going to change. The intel is going to be wrong. There's going to be weather conditions. There's going to be targets of opportunity, whatever the case may be. But having that wherewithal to just keep going irrespective of what it is, which is what the Marines are known for, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, on, on the positive side of things too, I mean, you can project a positive result that may not actually, you don't know actually is going to be able to happen too. So you have to temper your expectations sometimes. I guess that's kind of a, a Marcus Aurelius way of thinking, right? Just accept whatever happens, regardless of what your expectations were for what was going to happen. I think that's great. The idea of being able to do anything or be aware of anything, but also with you, had you just believed that this was going to be a limitation for you, then we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. You wouldn't have been in the Paralympics. You wouldn't have done all the incredible things that you've done, which we'll get into. But I also believe that sometimes when people lower their expectation too much, sometimes that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and there are things that they could accomplish, but they're just either afraid to do the work or they allow that narrative to become what their reality is. And I think that you're a great example of a person. You're like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to go for this. I'm going to see what this does. And if it doesn't work out, great. But the fact that you're willing to keep trying and keep pushing, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to know something that's going to happen. You don't know, have to know the result for sure. And in fact, if you do know the result for sure, it's a sign that maybe you're not doing something hard enough. You just have to give yourself a chance. Give yourself the chance that if everything goes perfectly, then there's the outside possibility that you can be successful. And then you just feed off of that and let that be your little bit of optimism. And then as you get closer and closer, as you go further and further, then the scales start to tip of what the probability of it happening is going to be. Like running a marathon at mile one, you might feel like you can't do it, or maybe there's a very small chance I'll be able to do this, but maybe if everything goes perfectly, I'll be able to do it. But as the miles tick off, eventually you get to mile 26 and you go, all right, I'm pretty much going to finish this unless a bomb goes off. It's interesting too, because you mentioned something earlier. If we're achieving our goals easily, then we're not pushing ourselves. We're not asking enough. We're not demanding enough. And lots of times the training that we do in preparation of the goal itself, that's when we learn the most, right? Because the actual goal, the actual event itself, sometimes it's just ancillary by comparison to all the stuff that we had to do and all the stuff we had to learn to become the person that can actually do this task in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. And then if you don't end up succeeding, then that's, there's a lesson in there as well. So for the month of marathons, I trained for a year and a half or one month. So yeah, you're right. There's a lot of things I had to learn about myself in order to be that person. And then you learn stuff during the course of the event. And that's so important. But right after you got out, you're like me, you need this goal. You need this thing to kind of train for, to keep you forward thinking. You went directly into training for the Paralympics. Can you tell us what that looked like? You had a great partner as well. Tell us about that journey. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't say I necessarily went directly into training for the Paralympics. I found out about the Paralympics within the first month of my recovery. I was in the hospital bed doing my after one of my first physical therapy sessions and like all I did was raise my stumps up and that you know wore me out completely you know that the difficulty of that session sort of sparked something within me because I always enjoyed working out and everything and so I just kind of went on google and started seeing if I could find out about different ways that people with disabilities could work out and paralympics was one of the things that came up and rowing specifically came up too as one of the sports as you know they have a list of all the sports I just kind of scrolled through it and saw rowing was one of them and I just remembered that the rowing machine in the gym was pretty hard. So it might be a good challenge for me as a, as a disabled person. But I kind of put the Paralympics aside because at that moment, just because I was at the very, very, very beginning of, a, of recovering. And so I didn't know 
what the future was going to look like. I kind of had it in my head that might be kind of cool if I could do it, but I had a lot of things I needed to do before getting to that point. But at the same time, I always had it in the somewhere in the forefront of my mind so that when a rowing coach that taught disabled people to row just so happened to be around the clinic, you know, I went up to him and I asked him about it. And then he had me hop on the rowing machine and showed me a couple things. And I think he had me do a 500 meter sprint, which I totally paced way too fast in the first hundred and blew up, you know, didn't know what I was doing. And then he asked me if I wanted to come down and learn how to row at the boathouse and everything. And so that kind of, I always had that in the forefront of my mind, but yeah, I, I, I very, you know, right after my injury, I, I wasn't really planning to go to the Paralympics necessarily, but just things just kind of clicked into place after, after I got a little bit stronger, regained my strength. And I was able to start thinking less about recovery from my injury and about how I was going to be able to move forward and do things with the strength that I had gained in recovery. And I think that was wise on your part because a lot of times we have friends that have done things or whether it be like a physical injury or even like a relationship and to bypass that emotion or to bypass the necessity of, of like actually recovering and accepting what's going on, they'll throw themselves into work or a job or a new project or a marathon or whatever because that allows them to kind of put that on hold. But in actuality, the thing that they need to focus on is, again, like you said, how can you push yourself if you're not even sure if you're recovered enough to be in a place where it's going to behoove you to try to do this thing, right? You may hurt yourself even worse or stop your capacity to recover entirely just because you're trying to, like you said, get faster at this 5,000 meter. Yeah, I mean, you can't move on from something until you've accepted it. You can't start to recover from something until you've accepted what's happened. You don't necessarily have to be happy about it. You just have to know the truth in your own brain that, you know, you lost both your legs in an IED blast or you got paralyzed or you're getting divorced or, you know, your spouse is cheating on you or you got fired. You just have to accept that that's the truth. And then once you see that, then you can start, that's, you know, your starting point, then you can pick at any point after that, but you have to know your starting point and you have to know your reality before you start, because any action that you take with a false sense of that reality or that false sense of that starting point, yeah, maybe it'll be in the right direction, but there's a good chance that it won't be. Yeah. There's the five stages of like acceptance when it comes to any kind of trauma. The first one's denial for sure. Then anger, because we're pissed off about all the stuff we took for granted. Then we get to the place of sort of bargaining, which what you're describing feels to me where a lot of people are at, where they know what the reality is right in front of them, whether it be a relationship that's not working out, a business, a job, whatever. But then they're sitting there kind of going through that micro cycle of the first three stages again. Well, I don't want to think about that. So I'll go back into denial. And then it's obvious. So they'll go back into anger, but they'll kind of cycle back three or four times, hoping that it will change the outcome. And again, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while to get to that place. But once you're to the place where it's like, finally, you're in that, the last stage is depression before acceptance. And you're like, just like you mentioned, you don't have to like it, but it's still the reality. So if this is the way it is, and this is where I'm at, now what? Yeah, I mean, what I tell people is if you're having trouble accepting it, ask a friend what they see your situation as. Or treat the situation like you're telling a friend what their situation is. But it's about your situation. Like if I was going to tell my friend that they were a double above me amputee because they stepped on an IED, that's what I would tell them. And that was what my situation was. So if you can't do that, then yeah, ask a trusted confidant. What would you say my situation is what's my reality and they'll tell you and then that's what it is probably 
Yeah. It's the reason why we can see when a friend's in a toxic relationship or when we see a fighter in the ring drop on their hands, it's like, because as Jocko would say, we're detached. We're, there's no emotion. We're being completely objective. We're not in the ring. We don't have any long-term commitments to these things. But yet being able to be that objective is what we have to have. And it's very easy for us to do it on anything except for our own situations, mm-hmm. it seems like often. Because you don't want it to be happening to you. And it's easy to tell somebody else because it's happening to them. You have no skin in the game over there. But when you have skin in the game and you, if something's happening to you that you don't want to happen, then yeah, you, that's what, where the denial comes from. And so you eventually got into the Paralympics and you had, it was with a partner as well, correct? Yeah, my partner was Oksana Masters. I met her because my coach knew her coach. She'd been trying to get to the Paralympics for a few years. She'd been rowing a lot longer than me. And we just so happened to row well together, similar heights, similar you know limb lengths and stuff like that. And she wanted to go to the Paralympics. And at that point, I was looking for something to do next. We met in like August of, or maybe July of 2011. And I was going to be retiring at the end of the year. I was looking for something to do next. She wants, she'd always want to go to the Paralympics. So I asked her, you know, do you want to go to the Paralympics? And she said, yeah. And we both moved down to Florida because you can't really row. I mean, you can row in December in DC, but we had a lot of technique that we needed to do and, and learning how to be rowing the boat together because we didn't really had barely rowed together at all. And I barely rowed on the water at all. So we had a lot of technique that we needed to learn to become as efficient as possible. So we moved to a place where we could do as much on the water rowing as possible to get that specific training in. So we moved down there, trained three months, and then we had to go up to New Jersey to become the national team. So the way you become the national team is by winning the national selection trial. So this is one race every March or whatever. And whoever wins that race gets to represent Team USA on the rowing team, US rowing for that year in the international races. So it's like a win or nothing, you know, situation. We went up there, we won, and then trained another two months down in Florida. And then the next stop for us was to qualify our boat for the Paralympics. And so there were two spots left. Previous national team hadn't qualified our boat for the Paralympics. So in rowing, it's like that you don't qualify two people, you qualify the boat. And then the country decides who gets put in that boat. And so our country hadn't qualified a boat yet. So our next task was to place first or second in our first ever international race and the last chance to qualify for the Paralympics. And that happened in Belgrade, Serbia. And not only did we qualify, we won. We won that race against, you know, some experienced crews. So we were doing good. And then we decided to move up to Charlottesville, Virginia for our summer training. And we rode out of the University of Virginia Boathouse. Roger Payne was our, was the boatman for the UVA and he coached us. And then this other guy named Brad Lewis. We wrote this book called Olympian about his time in 1984, winning the gold and the double skulls in 1984. And that's sort of like, uh, it was sort of like my rowing Bible because I found out about it. And it just has a really great perspective about what true dedication to one task is and what it takes to win a gold medal. And so I read that book and it just really struck a chord with me. And I found all these similarities, like he had a goatee and he cut his hair like him. He wasn't a Marine, but he cut his hair like a Marine because he wanted to look ugly. And so I was like, I am a Marine that I had the same haircut as you and I'm in the doubles. And so I, I emailed him because he puts his email address in his book. So I emailed him on the off chance. I say, Hey, we're looking for a new coach. Would you be interested? I didn't really expect that he'd say yes, because I'm sure he had something going on, but he said, you know what? Like your story. I like you guys. I'll, I'd be happy to coach you. Wow. And so he came out to Charlottesville and he coached us for the last few months and went to the Paralympics in uh, September. 
So you started serious training in January. Late December. Late December. So in less than a year, you were able to put together. And again, like you said, all these things had to happen in that synchronicity, had to qualify, had to get that spot, had to get the boat qualified. This is a new person that you're doing this with. Yeah, we barely knew each other. <laughs> I was going to say, and so that in and of itself, there's dynamics there. Mm -hmm. There's understanding as a Marine being in combat, there's that teamwork, there's that trust, there's that almost dynamic subordination where it's like, there may be times when my partner has to lead and I have to be sensitive to that, almost like a dance and knowing when to give and take. Can you give us an example of how that played out? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say I was as good a leader then as I am now. I probably wasn't very good at, at all. I didn't have all any of the wisdom that you just spoke about. All I knew was that everything we did had to be something that made us go faster. And if that wasn't happening, then I, I didn't want to do it. So I, I didn't go home for Christmas. I didn't go home for weddings or birthdays or anything. I didn't really eat anything that wasn't going to make me a better physical specimen. wasn't the energy that I needed. I lived in a hotel. So I did all these things because they were just going to make us faster. And then ultimately, we dropped our coaches in Florida because they were not making us faster anymore. And so we had to go find new coaches. So being able to work with, with my partner as a team, as somebody I'd never met before, didn't really have a history with, and just being able to listen to her and really just learn from her experience. She had a lot more experience than I did in terms of rowing. So I had to subordinate my ego to listen when she was telling me things about things that I can improve on. And I can't say I did it every time. I'm not perfect, but you know, that was what I should have done. <laughs> I was going to say you're human, right? Yeah. Of course, there's going to be something there. And, and it's interesting, like you said, we can take criticism even when it's constructive, even when it's the way we need to hear it sometimes. But then, like you said, eventually it's like, what am I doing right? Or am I screwing up the rest of this stuff in the process? And then we get in our own heads. And now, and for those that were listening to your, that sort of Spartan routine, that resilient, that mentality of this, this athlete, that sounds extreme, but it's the reality. Like if you're trying to get to where you were trying to go, you're going to the Olympics, you're trying to go faster. There's no work-life balance. You don't give a shit about any of these other things. It's like, this is my goal. This is the objective. And so while people that are listening that may have kids and a job and other responsibilities or priorities, what you are talking about sounds extreme, but they're not trying to do what you were doing. Yeah, it's not something that you would want to do. I mean, I'm sure there's probably some people that have done gone to the Olympics with as a parent and everything, but it's not the healthy prescription for healthy relationships with people that are in your life. You know, you're you're sacrificing that for this one thing because you're trying to be the best person out of seven billion. And I will say in the Paralympics, it's a little bit easier to fast track. Like you would never hear about somebody starting rowing in December and then making it to the Olympics by September of the next year. It just wouldn't happen because there's so many people doing it. The pool of athletes in the Paralympics is less. So it is a little bit easier to fast track your career and get to the Paralympics in a short period of time. But that doesn't mean that you're not still sacrificing everything that you need to sacrifice and pushing yourself to the absolute limit every day or at the degradation of relationships and everything else in, in the world. And that's where it's so hard because you understand that this is the priority. If everything else is a priority too, then it's no longer a priority that you're working towards. So you have to have that single-minded focus. And again, you're like, I only have this short window. I have to get this done now. If you don't do the training session today and you, instead you decide to go to a wedding or you decide to 
go to somebody's birthday party and you skip your training that day or you don't eat or you have a few beers and that makes it so tomorrow's training session isn't as good. That opportunity to gain strength and gain speed and gain technique is only there for that time period. And if you'd miss that, then you're just going to be that little less able when at times to when it comes time to race. And so the people that you're racing against probably aren't making that choice. They're getting every session in as high quality as, as it can be. And so, yeah, I mean, the opportunities, they only exist when they exist. And if you don't take them, then you just don't get that. You don't get that extra strength you could have gained. Just like with you, there were gyms all over the place, either when you were in Garrison or when you were out in the field training. Yeah. There was always, you know, a plaque or something. And <laughs> one of the things above one of the doors was your enemy thanks you for not giving 100% today. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, again, when those things were just, it really puts it in perspective. And it's very cut and dry. It has to be very, there's no punches pulled. It's like, this is what it is. Are you willing to do this? If you're not, that's fine. But the, if the result's not what you want, then you have nobody else to blame but yourself. And then there's the other component of having your partner. Mm. So back to that kind of teamwork, it's like, this is my my battle buddy. This is the person that I'm in the trenches with. Yeah. If I'm not going to be willing to do it for myself, I need to be willing to do it for them. If that's what allows me to stay hydrated, to eat the right foods, et cetera, then that's what we do, right? Yeah, you know, that was something that I, I did rely on from time to time when I was feeling kind of flat or whatever, was that Oksana was my rowing partner. And it was her dream to go to the Paralympics for years and years. I think since she was 13 years old or something like that, when she started rowing. Or maybe not that long, but yeah, eight, nine years at least. And so when I was feeling like I didn't want to keep pulling really hard on a thousand meter piece, I would just try and remember that this is her dream. And if I back off, then I'm really doing her a disservice. And I need to push myself to help her achieve her dream. So tried to rely on the selfless aspect of being in a partnership in times of weakness. I agree. And there's people that are like, it's all about me. And that's what kind of keeps them going. And there is a point like that. But as you said, as a human, we're going to have ups and downs. And if we feel like we can't push any farther or faster, as you were saying, you're not going fast enough. That's when we start saying, am I doing enough? Really? Am I bullshitting myself? Am I holding back? And does that mean I'm holding this person back as well? So this gives you that that's your mirror that keeps you really, really honest. And that gives you something to, again, it's the standard, right? The standard is actually the bare minimum. We want to go above it as much as we can. I mean, the the, what, the way that you're going to get the greatest strength that you can possess is being able to tie what you need to do back to why the people that you care about more than yourself are needing you to do it. For example, in my recovery, my mom was crushed, obviously, to hear about me losing my legs to an IED. After I got put unconscious in the tank, somehow I woke up next in Germany and I knew that she was going to be crushed. And so I started thinking about what, what was going to be best for her and what was going to be best for her was for me to be okay. And so I think something just clicked in my brain at that point and I was fine after that. And it's a similar thing where say a regular person not training for the Olympics or anything, they don't want to go out and go for a run. That's what they plan today. And they don't want to do that and they're feeling a little bit weak. But if they can then tie why they need to go on that run back to their children and the fact that their children want them to be around for as long as possible and they want them to be a grandpa and a great grandpa, then it's important to go out on this run right now so I can stay as healthy and live as long and as well as I possibly can. And so you can tie that back. You can look at that extremely important mission that you have to be there for your children 
And that's what gives you the strength in a moment of weakness. And the same thing if you're, you know, somebody offers you something that you know you shouldn't be eating or whatever the case may be, you can use that in these brief moments. And then you can also use it in the big endeavors as well, like the Paralympics. I was trying to help, you know, Oksana reach her goal. And I wanted to show my family and my friends that I was going to be okay. And so one of one of the ways I could do that was by winning a medal in the Paralympics. Yeah. And you did medal in the Paralympics. Yeah, we won a bronze, luckily. It was a pretty, it was a bit of a nail biter. I think we passed the Great British Boat in the last maybe five meters or something. We won by it. We got third by about two tenths of a second. So um, yeah. if I mm-hmm. skipped a couple workouts. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So sometimes we work so hard for something and we, we achieve it and you medal and you have this great accomplishment. Are you able to enjoy it? Are you able to be present to it? Or were you like, what's the next thing? I was, I had like sort of a uh, dichotomous feeling at the point, at that point, because I was really proud of us for getting third. We were nobodies. Nobody knew who we were. When we got there, everybody was like, that's the American boat. They seemed pretty good, but we'd never even heard of them before. Every other boat that had been probably training since the last Paralympics and they all knew each other and they'd heard their names before and everything. Nobody knew who the heck we were. We kind of came out of nowhere and kind of upset things a little bit. So I was very proud of that, considering we did that in nine months and we got third in the world. That's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. But at the same time, I wanted to win. I always had it in my mind to win. I wanted to win. So there was a little bit of a disappointment there too. But given, I, I wouldn't say I really dwelled on that too much because I was able to put things into perspective. Winning would have been like climbing Mount Everest in a pair of shorts, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. you can't really get too mad at yourself for not being able to climb Mount Everest in a pair of shorts. You can't get mad at yourself for being a nobody training for nine months and not winning a gold medal in the Paralympics. So I was able to put it into perspective. But the whole time I did rowing, I kind of had this gut feeling that it wasn't really going to be something I was going to do for a long time. A lot of people, they do, you know, six, seven, eight. I think Oksana's on her like 12th year now of competing in various sports. Some people do it for a long time, but I knew that it just didn't have the greater meaning, greater purpose in it that kind of matched what I was doing when I was in the Marine Corps. Like when I boiled it down in my head, it was really mostly just about winning a race and seeking glory for myself pretty much after that year. And so I knew I kind of just didn't, I wasn't going to do it for very long and I needed to do something else in order to find meaning for myself. And how were you able to find that next thing? How were you able to find meaning? Did you cultivate some empty space to give you this idea to kind of look up and out? Well, I mean, I kind of knew what I wanted to do at the end of the Paralympics. I've been thinking about, through the whole time I did it, I've been thinking about doing this cross-country bike ride. And I thought that that would be, I'd actually been thinking about the cro- doing a cross-country bike ride since I was learning how to ride a bike in, in therapy. It's another thing that I just kind of put to the side. So I'd been thinking about it and kind of at the end of the Paralympics, that's when I decided I was I wanted to do that because I, was, I just came to that realization that the rowing, competing in sports isn't really going to be something that's all that meaningful to me. And so in order to be able to have the time to plan for the bike ride, I, I did another year of rowing and went to world championships. And while, but while I was training for that year, I was kind of planning my bike ride. And we placed fourth that year. And I I mean, I will say that I think I didn't really have the fire as much as I did in 2012. I wouldn't say I really ever missed a training session on purpose or anything, but I think that I probably just didn't have quite as much dedication to it. And then, you know, there's the result. And it's, it's understandable that there's, 
there's something about attacking an objective that you've never tried before. There's this newness to it. There's this, yeah, I want to say excitement, but, but there's also this idea of like, this is completely new territory. And if we can maintain that focus and say, I'm going to make sure that every session, every day, every ounce of water I take in is exactly the best that I can possibly make it. Once you've kind of done that, it's hard to maintain that level of intensity indefinitely. It's really difficult. Yeah. I just didn't really, I wasn't, I didn't really care about doing it anymore. You know, I was just, I was just doing it. It didn't have the big meaningful objective behind it. Like showing people that I could still live a meaningful life and going to the Paralympics and everything. So just didn't have that behind it anymore. So I just didn't really, you know, I didn't have the fire for it as much as the previous year. And then, so the bike ride was the next venture for you. Yeah. So I figured maybe I could ride my bike across the country and raise money for veteran charities as a way to, you know, feel like I was doing something meaningful. And so I uh, wanted to make it, I, nobody had ever done it before as a double above the amputee. I wanted to make it as hard as, as possible. So I re- decided to start from Bar Harbor, Maine and ride to Southern California. I was thinking about like which route I could take across the country. I could go across the North. I could go across the middle. I could go across the South, but there always, there's always like a butt associated with each one of those. And I didn't want there to be any butts with what I did. And so I figured I would go diagonally across because then nobody could say, oh, but he could have done a longer route or something. <laughs> and I also did it in the wintertime to make it a little bit extra challenging, which, and I ended up in the Rocky Mountains in February, which wasn't ideal, but we, we made it through. Oh my God. <laughs> That's brutal. That's like hypothermia waiting to happen. Yeah, I was bundled up. There was one day that I didn't ride because it was nine below zero or something like that. So you know what? I'm just going to take the day off. <laughs> smart. Very smart. But yeah, it was a lot of a lot of cold days, a lot of snow. And how many days did that take? I was 181. Yeah. And I had a my brother, my little brother Steve. He was 18. He drove a U-Haul behind me. We we got this U-Haul. I bought this 17 foot used U-Haul. Had like 250,000 miles on it and everything. And I bought it for a couple thousand bucks. And we made it all nice in the back. And we put some cots in there and slept in them. And whenever we couldn't get a hotel, a lot of the times we got, most of the time we got a hotel given, donated to us. Nice. Because my friend Tina was, she was calling ahead of us. And she was usually able to contact a hotel or two that would say, oh yeah, they can stay here and get them on board with the what I was doing. So I ended up raising $125,000 for various veteran charities and yeah it was it was a great success wow the only problem with it was i still didn't feel like totally fulfilled at the end that was a little bit strange i I didn't really know what was going on there at the time i do know i know now but i didn't really get it why i didn't really quite feel like it was the whole time i did it I, i was trying to do the fundraising and the challenge and to do the fundraising i had to do a lot of interviews and i had to give a lot of speeches and i always never really wanted to do the speeches I didn't feel like I had a message that I wanted to share with people. I just wanted them to hear about what I was doing and just, they can just get their own message. I don't, why am I having to tell them their message? That's what, why am I having to tell them the message they should be getting? I don't want to do that. And so whenever I would get like a group of people would want to welcome me into a town or somebody would want to do an interview, it would always sort of irritate me because I just wanted to do the bike ride. That's all I wanted to do. And so that sort of, took a little bit of the enjoyment out of the bike ride was I was kind of a little always a little bit irritated by the fact that I had to slow myself down in order to do this sort of uh speaking and I guess maybe like this sort of type of leadership that I wasn't ready to do what didn't want to do so that the bike ride wasn't completely fulfilling at that time and so at the end of the bike ride I didn't really know what I was going to do tried to make the Paralympics again in 2016 and triathlon 
and that didn't work out whatsoever. I, I don't think I ever won a single race. I wanted to push myself to the next level, so I competed up a category. I competed in a category against guys that had just one fully intact leg, and so I just got destroyed on the bike portion. I would I would get a couple minutes back on the run, but I always got crushed in the bike portions. So that was a couple of years that I trained and just didn't you know didn't work out. But then the running portion was still something that you were able to continue with. Yeah, I rediscovered. I sort of rediscovered this natural talent for running that I had. You know, I'd always had it since elementary school. In the Marines, I barely ever had to run in order to get a good score on the PFT. I'm jealous. Yeah. I hated the run. So, I, you know, it's just what I, I guess I was just genetically predisposed for, to be good at running. I was, you know, when I was training triathlons, I was able to get my 5K. I think my 5K was 18 minutes flat. Yeah, it was really fast. I did that rain, running like twice a week. That was it. During, because I rediscovered that kind of natural talent for running, I ended up deciding to run the Marine Corps Marathon for fun, just to kind of break up my training a little bit in the off season. Ran the Marine Corps Marathon, thought it was really fun, loved it. And then when I failed to, when I quit triathlon, I was forced again, you know, once again to figure out what was next. And at that point, I sort of had this, I've been sort of noticing over the last few years before about how really the only stories we ever saw about veterans coming home was about how when we came home, we were all haunted. We're all basket cases. We're all constantly on the verge of implosion and destroying ourselves the fact that that was really the only story we saw in movies and in tv shows and the news media it bothered me because it didn't represent me and it didn't represent any really any of my friends that i deployed with and so at that point that's when i sort of realized that i did need to be a leader again the way that i chose to do that i was like you know what i'm going to create a story that is going to get into the media that's how i'll do it i'm going to tell our side of the story and the way that i'm going to do that is by running you know, a bunch of marathons back to back. And ultimately, Pam, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, we settled on a month of marathons is what we we're going to do. So 31 and 31 days in 31 different cities as my way to put a little extra spin on it. Because I'd heard about this guy, Richard Whitehead, who was a double bony amputee. He did 40 marathons or he attempted 40 marathons in 40 days. And then Iron Cowboy did the 50 Ironmans in the States. 50, 50, yeah. uh, and then there's other people that did a lot of things like that. So I put my own little spin on it by doing it all in different cities. And if I wanted to get the story out there as much as possible, I needed to do it in these populous places where the news would get out to millions and millions of people. Man, so 31 in a row. Yeah. 31 marathons. 31 consecutive. Just marathons on my own. Not like I didn't run the New York City Marathon. I ran a marathon in New York. No, no, of course. Yeah, you run 26.2 and you were, yeah. you were there. I would just do loops, loops of parks, or I'd find a trail and run back and forth on the trail. Like I would have an RV and I would try and always stay within two and a half kilometers of my RV. So I'd run two and a half K that way, then back, and then two and a half K the other way and back, and just kind of always stay right in that little area. So we were discussing earlier how that sometimes the preparation in and of itself is where we have that discovery, where we learn, where we get that next level. Yeah. What were you discovering? What was new? What was surprising for you in the preparation leading up to that? And then obviously the 31-day event, was there any big takeaways? Yeah, there was a lot of, I mean, what I needed to do was I needed to train my body to be able to just go and go and go and go. And so I knew I needed to have a really efficient heart and lungs. So the way that I trained was by using this thing called Maffetone method, which is about only training at the basically the threshold of your aerobic capacity. Oh, too much. And so if you go above the, if you go above out of aerobic and into anaerobic, then um, 
that trains something else that doesn't train cardiovascular efficiency. It teaches your body to use carbohydrates for fuel instead of fat. So I knew that I knew that I needed to use fat for fuel primarily. And I knew I needed to have a giant heart, giant lungs and just the ability to just continue going on. So that's, I chose that method to use. I started like running 60 minutes, three times a week. That was it for this first six weeks. And every six weeks I made it gradually harder, you know, as you do, I either, you know, ran longer or I ran more times in the week, or I grouped my runs together differently. The last 12 weeks I was running two hours on Monday, two hours, Wednesday, full marathon, Thursday, 90 minutes, Friday, and then going to the gym Tuesday and Saturday. So I kind of went from that very beginning all the way to that in 18 months. And then I had to practice the marathon challenge itself. And so at the end of every six weeks, I would practice the, the practice, the actual challenge. So at the end of the first six weeks, I just ran one marathon. Like, okay, at the end of six weeks, I can still run one marathon. And then I trained for another six weeks and I attempted to, I failed. I quit on the second marathon, which is not a good sign. Your first ever attempt to <laughs> run back to back. Um, but then I analyzed it. And I just, I, I determined that, you know what? I probably just didn't eat enough after that first. I didn't eat enough carbs after the first. I went to a little bit too low carb after that first marathon. Mm. So I need to add a little bit more carbs and see how I feel. And so, and I also ran it, like I stayed at my buddy's house and he's has a two, four house. So I was just kind of too tired. I was in bed in the, in the top floor. I just didn't feel like, like going to get more food. And so I just hadn't set myself up for success really. And so Six weeks later, I decided I tried three. And for that one, I got my, I got a room at a residence in and I bought tons of food. And so I kind of had my little base of operations and I found a place on the trail that I could just, that I could use, sat in the, you know, I would do my first loop and then I would sit in my car for a while and then kind of the next loop and then sit in my car. So I was just figuring out how I could pace the marathons, how I could break the distance down into sizable chunks. Like I ended up running 12 kilometers, taking 20 minute break, 12 kilometers, 20 minute break, 9.2 kilometers, 20 minute break, nine kilometers. And that was it. So I figured out how I could break the distance down. So I'd never overexerted myself on any given day, tried out different recovery practices, tried out my eating solution. Like what things was I going to be able to eat and then still be able to run a marathon the next day without having gastrointestinal problems. What could I eat during the marathon? What could I eat before the marathon? So I had to figure all this stuff out. And the way that I did that was by doing these test sessions. And I ended up running five back-to-back marathons, ultimately, in training. And I kind of figured after five, you know, they still got 26 more, but I didn't run one more than five without just continuing to go. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, you're kind of unnecessary wear and tear, especially if we're trying to save ourselves for the event itself, right? Yeah. I mean, my only regret that I have for my training is I wish that I had run a single marathon for time at some point just to see how fast I could, I could have gone for one marathon, whether or not I could have gotten under three hours or under four hours or whatever, just out of, you know, just for fun. It would have been cool to, to find out just how good I got myself for one marathon at that point as like the peak shape that I've ever been in. And then after you did the 31, you found that feeling of fulfillment at the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I loved, I loved the entire marathon challenge because I was doing something really hard that was pushing myself. My wife, Pam, was my team leader. She just ran the whole operation. All I did was run and do interviews. She ran the operation. My mom was there as my massage therapist. And then my, a buddy of mine, I drove the RV and helped out on the side. And 
because I had accepted that I did want to be a leader this time and I did want to tell people what they should be thinking and what they should be getting from it, those two things sort of formed that symbiotic relationship that made it enjoyable and meaningful to me. Where the bike ride, I, I was sort of resisting the one and wanting to do the other one. And so those things were sort of in combat with each other, but they formed a symbiosis on the marathon challenge. And then from there, it just kind of showed me that I didn't need to continue to be, I don't know if I want to call myself a thought leader, but you know, a person that can use my experiences and use my words to inspire people. And that's what it is. I mean, you have an experience most people are never going to have. Yeah. And then you've been able to take that experience and lean into the hardship of it and say, I can either sit here and cry about this or I can do something. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to do something. And you just continue to push yourself. There's plenty of people that are out there that are just regurgitating what other people have said. They're just trying to be the next Tony Robbins, Ed Myla, whoever you want to use. We need more leaders that can actually lead from experience as opposed to just an opinion because everybody thinks that if they have a Wi-Fi connection, they're qualified to have an opinion about whatever the hell it is. <laughs> and in today's day and age, we need more people that are actually leading by example from this place of action as opposed to just talking about it. That's why when I found out about you, I was like, man, I got to talk to this guy. Yeah. I mean, if you have the, if you have like, you know, the academics, uh, like sort of like the, you know, the philosophy that you've read the Stoics or you've read Jocko or you've read all these different people that kind of give you the philosophy and you pair that together with the experience side of that and how you've been able to apply that to your own experiences, it makes you a lot more believable and it makes you a lot more impactful. But then at the same time, I'm not, when I do motivational speeches and inspirational speeches, I'm not saying anything unique, really. I'm not saying anything that nobody's ever said before. Maybe in a couple ways I might be, but most of the stuff I say is, has been said by other motivational speakers. But the way that I say it and the, the experience that I have that comes behind it and the, my life experience is going to resonate with people differently than other motivational speakers. And the same thing with you too. I mean, I'm sure you and I say a lot of the same stuff, but the way that you say it and the way that your background is going to resonate with somebody when in a way that maybe mine wouldn't so much. That's one of the things I struggled with, I think, when I was starting to be a speaker was that I would just sit there and be like, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. Like, this has all been said before. Like, I'm not, I'm not being unique whatsoever. And so I had to come to terms with, with what I just said, basically, about doesn't, you don't have to say something unique because you present it in a unique way and people will resonate differently. And that's exactly what it is. We're not saying anything new, but we're saying it directly from our examples, from our experiences. And that has a lot more validity. And at the same time, when you're speaking, people know that you're actually speaking from experience from the heart. And I, I don't know how you can take the end result of the person that's in the audience and they can tell the difference between the person that's up there that's like nervous or trying to fake it. And then when you stand on stage and it becomes abundantly obvious, it's like, okay, this is the real deal. This is a person that's trying to impress me. Or this is a person that's speaking to hear themselves talk or they're trying to hard pitch you on their newest program or whatever. It's like, that's not what people really want. They really want somebody they can tell them from experience what's going on. And then you being very honest and transparent about, listen, just because I've got over these things doesn't mean that I don't face hardship and adversity every day. Doesn't mean that I don't have trouble. Doesn't mean that I don't run into obstacles. And sometimes I don't always get what I need or I don't always go as far as I want to. But in that, even within that quote unquote failure of reaching the goal, we still learn so much. Those are the lessons. That's the hero's journey that everybody sees, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a stark difference between when you say something about life and when somebody that, you know, just works out in the gym 
and post pictures of themselves shirtless <laughs> when they put a motivational message in their Instagram post yep. versus when you do it, it's like, it's completely different because that other person, I don't really see they haven't faced any hardship probably, whereas you've overcome it. So it's like, they're probably just copying and pasting something from somebody. Whereas the lessons that you're saying and the lessons that I give, I came up with them on my own. They're not unique. They're not something that other people haven't said, but I, I came up with them on my own because I lived through them. And I had to decipher that experience into a piece of wisdom for myself in order to get myself through something. And then that's how I came up with it. And yeah, other people have come up with it too, because they it's all the same stuff. But when you just copy and paste it out of a book, it's just kind of empty. Absolutely is. Rob, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your example, for your leadership, for actually not just talking about it, for being about it. You're speaking quite often. You have a lot of things that are going on. Where can we go to find out more about you, about your speaking? And you even gave me a little insight that you have a memoir that will be coming out hopefully in the next year or so. So where can we learn more about this? Yeah, I just finished the fifth draft of my memoir. Send it over to Jocko's people. They're going to take a look at it and see if they want to publish it. Oh, Jocko Publishing? Yeah. Nice. Um, so I sent it over to them and hopefully they'll want to publish it. Hopefully they'll come back and say it's perfect. You don't have to do any more writing on this thing because I'm sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, oh my God. Have you written a book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm sure you're well aware of how annoying it is. Right, I'm going to have to buy it. It is. And then I'll send you one, brother. It's all good. It's- um. Yeah, so I'm sure you're well aware of how ruling and I just want to be done with the book. So hopefully that'll come out soon and you know, in the next little bit here. And then my website's robjonesjourney.com. All my uh, social media is the same, just at Rob Jones Journey. So we can actually inquire there about having you speak and having you come out and do things as well. Yeah, I, I get, um, I would say stick with Instagram and uh, LinkedIn mostly. That's kind of what I'm on most. Um, and then my website. You can email me through there. You can do an inquiry through there. Yeah. So anybody that wants to talk to me for any reason can can contact me through those those mediums. I love it. Is there one parting piece of advice you want to have before we sign off to anybody that's going through hardship right now? I think it's probably just what I alluded to before about being able to harness the power of a selfless purpose to give yourself strength when you need it. If I had to say that there's the one theme in everything that I've done, that's probably the one theme. And then you can use that for the big things. You can use it for the little things. It's just figuring out how the person that you care about more than yourself, why and how they're relying on you to be successful in whatever you're trying to do and relying on you to do the right thing uh, in any given moment when you're deciding between two things to do. And if you can do that, and that's what gives you the strength. I mean, that's how soldiers and Marines and everybody, that's how they're able to run into machine gun fire. That's how I was able to go into minefields uh, with a metal detector to try and clear it of IEDs because the people I cared about more than myself were relying on me to do that. And so you can make that work for every situation in life, big things and the most mundane detail. That's the excellent way to lead, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the foundation of leadership is doing things for your team before yourself. So, I mean, that's the, if you don't have that, then you're not a leader. I agree. Or you're a bad leader, I guess. <laughs> you're a bad example of leader. You're a leader regardless, right? You're a leader whether you're leading well or you're not leading uh, well. <laughs> right. But if you're a good leader, then you're thinking about other people before yourself. That's it. If you're not leading by example, you're just setting a bad example. So. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Absolutely. Thank you, my friend. It's been an honor talking to you and I look forward to everything you've got going. I look forward to your book. Thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's been great to meet you. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media.